welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Indus. And it's been an interesting and chaotic month in South Asia as we start with the story that Sheikh Hasina has predictably led an Awami League victory in Bangladesh, sweeping the elections with 222 out of 300 seats. This election was, as we discussed in our last podcast, marked by irregularities and the suppression of the opposition. And although Sheikh Hasina does seem to have pulled this off, she has a lot of tough challenges ahead. With growing economic problems, high inflation, and a growing foreign exchange crisis that might pose severe challenges to rule at the continuation of her legacy in Bangladesh. Now, moving west to India, on January the 22nd, Prime Minister Narendra Modi undertook the consecration ceremony of the controversial Ram Temple in Ayodhya in the northern state of Uttar Pradesh. This marked the culmination of one of the most long standing disputes in Indian political history. Long-time India watchers might remember that the temple was built on the site of a medieval mosque destroyed in 1992 that set up a series of riots and propelled the BJP to the prominence that it has today because building the Ram Temple was one of its long-standing electoral promises. Modi fulfilled this promise in style after three decades, launching a months-long countrywide publicity campaign culminating in the opening ceremony of the half-finished temple being personally led by Modi. This event is also unofficially the bugle call that marks the beginning of the election campaign in India, as parties across the Indian political spectrum scramble to prepare for the world's largest democratic election set to take place in April and May of this year. And concerning news coming in from the western edge of the subcontinent, as on the 15th of January, Iran launched missile strikes into Pakistan, killing two children and injuring four others. Coming one day after it launched similar missile strikes into Iraq and Syria, Iraq claims that it was targeting a Baloch separatist group called Jaish ul Adil. Pakistan condemned these airstrikes, calling it an unprovoked attack, and conducted retaliatory airstrikes into Iran's Sistan and Balochistan province on the 18th of January. This surprise attack has raised concerns, predictably, in the international community about further destabilization in the region, with even the Afghan Taliban releasing a statement calling the recent violence alarming and asking both its neighbors to exercise restraint. Although the crisis does seem to have abated, with both Pakistan and Iran's foreign ministers agreeing to improve ties, it does raise the specter of the conflicts emerging in the Middle East post the Israel-Gaza war spreading to South Asia, a region that already has its fair share of economic and security concerns. And this brings us to our main topic for this podcast, the Pakistan election. Now, here's a statistic that might surprise some of you. Pakistan has had 29 prime ministers in its independent history, and yet not one of them has completed an entire term after being elected. Now, part of that reason is Pakistan, like India, is a large and diverse country with chaotic politics. But part of that reason is the military, who have always played an outsized role in Pakistan's democracy. Not only have they imposed martial law and ruled Pakistan directly for several decades, they have also played a role in ousting, arresting, exiling, or executing at least 15 of Pakistan's elected prime ministers. And in 2018, they tried a similar playbook, where they tipped the scales in favor of their own chosen candidate, Imran Khan, and his PTI party. But things didn't pan out quite as they hoped, because when Imran Khan was ousted in April 2022, he didn't go down quietly and his resistance has posed one of the greatest challenges to the Pakistani establishment maybe since 1971. So this election is being fought under the shadow of this political crisis and also with a larger economic and security crisis playing out in the background. So in order to understand this, we've brought on two incredible guests who will help us decode the chaos in the Pakistan electoral campaign and understand who the players are, what their campaigns look like and how the military is influencing the proceedings ongoing. Stay tuned. So joining us today to help us decode the Pakistan elections, uh, we have two incredible guests. With us, we have Kunwar Kuldone Shahid. Kunwar is a Pakistan-based correspondent for The Diplomat. He's also a member of 101 Reporters, which is a pan-Asian network of grassroots reporters. His work has been featured in several notable publications from The Guardian, Foreign Policy, BBC, Le Monde, and The Telegraph, just to name a few. And uh, what I love about Converse articles for The Diplomat is they cover such a wide range of topics from politics to economics to even cricket league. So we're really keen to get a ground level analysis of what the election in Pakistan is looking like. So welcome to the podcast, Converse. It's great to have you on. Thank you for having me, Tushar, and thank you for the generous introduction. 
And returning to Beyond the Indus is friend of the podcast, Mike Kugelman. Amongst foreign policy wonks, Michael is someone who almost needs no introduction. In fact, Michael, I have you written my notes describing you as the Bruce Springsteen of South Asia analysts, but I thought that was kind of outdated. So to any of our Gen Z listeners, Michael Kugelman is like the Taylor Swift of South Asia analysts. He's the director of the South Asia Institute at the Wilson Center. He's edited or co-edited 11 books and has written for publications like the New York Times, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, and The Diplomat, covering topics ranging from U.S. policy in South Asia to terrorism, water, energy, and food security in the region. Uh, So, Michael, thanks so much for joining the podcast, and it's great to see you again. Thank you. It's great to, to be back and I really appreciate the two kind introduction. Though I will say I Springsteen is one of my favorites, so I'm happy to stick with that instead of Taylor Swift. <laughs> Fair enough. So to get to the election, and maybe Kunwar, we can start with you because we've done three podcasts on Pakistan and every single episode, there is one topic or person that we can't seem to get, get away from, and that's Imran Khan. And since 2018, the politics of Pakistan seem to be dominated by this man. And this election doesn't seem to be an exception. So after his ouster in an allegedly military-backed no-confidence vote in 2022, Imran Khan responded by taking to the streets, protesting this decision, which eventually culminated in his arrest and detainment in August of 2023, I believe. So maybe to start us off, could you take us through how Imran Khan chose to resist his ouster? And what were the series of events or decisions that led to his eventual arrest? I'm afraid I think we'll be talking about Imran quite a bit today as well. That, that's inevitable. But I, I'll probably take you a few months uh, before April uh, 2022. I think we need to go back to October 2021. That's where the, the rupture between the uh, military establishment and Imran Khan started over the appointment of the ISI chief. Without getting into too much detail, what happened was that um, the army, uh, through the ISPR, which is the official spokesman, uh, I, uh, official PR uh, agency of the, of the military. Some would argue that's true for all media houses in Pakistan, but the official is the ISPR. So they announced the next ISI chief, and even after, I think after, after the 20, 20 days had passed, PM office did not confirm that. Now the prerogative, the constitutional prerogative, obviously is with the, the prime minister, but that did not come from him, and that was the, the point where it was open to the to the public that they had, there is a rift between the military establishment and the European Brahman government at the time. What happened between October 2021 and April 2022 is just putting in the pieces together for the eventual ouster of Imran Khan. Now your question, how did Imran Khan, what did he do to resist the ouster? I would like to argue that the team around him knew that their days were numbered. And instead of resisting that, he was already planning ahead. Now where do we get the clues for uh, for this? The policies between October and April, October 2021 and April 2022. For example, there was severe fuel subsidy granted, which created a balloon that was going to burst for whichever government it was going to replace him. And even his words, he was saying things like, well, I'm going to be more dangerous for you when I'm not in power. That was something he was saying to, to the to the opposition at the time. So he was ready for that because he, he knew that he had fallen out of favor with the Madhya Establishment. Again, going slightly uh, uh, back before April, uh, April uh, 2022, on February 24, 2022, Imran Khan was in Moscow. And he wasn't just there, he's, he's on record, he's saying things like, oh, what a time to be here. I, I, I'm paraphrasing, you know, it's so much excitement. And then in March, Kamar Javid Bajwa, the army chief at the time, condemned the Russian invasion. While, while Imran Khan was saying things like, because the, the Western powers were requesting Pakistan to condemn it. And that's where he created this conspiracy theory that it was actually the US that is behind his. So his popularity in April 22 was at, at an all-time low. And this ouster actually gave him a new lease of flight ticket. And between April 2022 till his arrest in in August 2023, uh, that popularity has skyrocketed to a point where it's now the military establishment that is as notorious as it has been at least over the past 50 decades or so. That 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 is uh, that is a testament to the popularity of Imran Khan. And not just not just that. In, in July in October 2022. Uh, the by-elections from Mardan, northern Pakistan, to Karachi, they were completely, I mean, the PTI almost swept those by-elections. Now, coming to his his arrest, or in fact, before the arrest, we have to look at the assassination attempt on Imran Khan as well in November um, 2022. And before that assassination attempt, Imran Khan was repeatedly targeting the military establishment. He was saying things like, if something was to happen to me, I have recorded a video which is going to be released 
which will name everyone who's involved, you know, conspiracy against me and so on and so forth. So in Wazirabad at, at rally, Imran Khan was targeted. He survived, thankfully, but he was injured. And for the next few months, he was visibly on, 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 on a wheelchair. His first arrest, Imran Khan, was in May 2023. And that was on May 9th. And once that happened, riots across Pakistan began. And that's uh, where the GSQ building was targeted as well. That's where the whole idea that PTA, the, the whole narrative, state-backed narrative, or, or the establishment narrative, that PTA is a violent party and needs to be targeted, that's where they got their uh, justification for it. Um, PTA, PTI leaders were targeted. Over 2,000 PTI workers were arrested. Senior leaders such as Shiri Malzari, um, Asad Umar, Babad Chaudhdi have either left the party, left politics altogether, or joined another party. So this this whole campaign uh, began, and then finally, uh, August 2023, Imran Khan has, was uh, you know permanently arrested. And in the Toshakhana, the Toshakhana is is the treasury where the state gifts are kept. So currently, the Imran Khan's current indictments include the Toshakhana case, the Alkar Trust case, which is which involves the property tycoon Malik Kareyaz and his cleaning of the dirty money in the case with the, with the UK government and the fact that the Pakistani government at the time, Imran Khan's government helped and benefited from Malik Raz's dealings with, with the UK government. This year's GSU attack case from May 9th, Cypher case, the Cypher case is basically that Imran Khan flaunted a confidential diplomatic leak between uh, US and Pakistan and <clears throat> that is one of the cases as well and a contempt against the election commission. So all these cases are against them either arrested in those cases or indicted in, in those cases. Kunwar, I think that was a really interesting summary because sort of what comes to mind is that corruption cases against Pakistan prime ministers or Pakistan politicians aren't exactly new. And, you know, while Imran Khan, you know, he might not be the first Pakistan leader to be ousted by the establishment. He's certainly one of the few who has openly challenged the establishment uh, so successfully, in my opinion, until his arrest. So, Michael, maybe you could make us understand why is Imran Khan being able to resist the establishment to this extent? And why did the establishment take so long to finally put him behind bars to detain him? And what change in circumstance, considering these cases were already out there, what changed that allowed them to finally do so in the August of 2023? Uh, well, thanks. Um, first, just uh, a quick uh, follow-up to what uh, Kunwar said. I, I agree with everything he said, but you asked that critical question of why, how Iran Khan was able to resist. Why did he resist? You know, he did have an opportunity for uh, an off-ramp, uh, which he did not take. This was when um, General Bajwa, the army chief, um, previously stepped down and was replaced by um, General Munir. Imran Khan could have used that opportunity to step back, conclude that, you know, he had this beef with General Bajwa. He could have just, you know, agreed to, to move on from that focus on elections, but he did not. Of course, he has issues with General Munir as well, which we could get into. But that's a, I think that's a key uh, point. So to your question... Now, look, uh, yeah, I think that um, there have been uh, cases of um, political leaders in Pakistan uh, who have lashed out uh, against the uh, against the military. I mean, Nawaz Sharif. I mean, he was he, he was pretty critical of the army, but indeed the the intensity and the type of rhetoric that Imran Khan has leveled against the military publicly, and including you know specifically calling out senior officers by name. You know, indeed, this is this is unusual. So, how is he able to get away with this, so to speak, is is the question. Um, yeah, I think several factors here. One is that uh, I imagine that the establishment appreciates that he is a very different breed of political figure than than a Nawaz Sharif or a Shabazz Sharif, for that matter, who, who wouldn't actually push back against the military. You know, he is someone who is able to bank on uh, significant levels of public support and charisma, which I think puts him more in the category of a Benazir Bhutto type. Um, more so than a Noah Sharif. And I think that the establishment recognizes that and recognizes that it needs to be careful about how how much it might want to crack down against uh, someone like Khan for fear of how his very large support base could respond. There's also the fact that within the army, uh, you know, you have significant levels of support for Khan that have stayed in place even after he fell out with the army leadership. And I think that uh, one has to look not at the top levels of the army leadership to find support for Khan, but you know, the, the lower and, and especially importantly, the middle ranks. And so it's a very delicate issue for the establishment, which you know, has, has been on the back foot um, for, for much of the last few years and you know, has to be very careful about it, how it goes about dealing with this guy, so to speak. And I think the last thing it would want to do was risk divisions within, uh, which are already there because of Khan. 
Um, but I think that things changed when you had the events of um, of May 2023, when you had these violent um, protests against military facilities in Pakistan. This is very unusual. And I think it was a whole new ballgame after that. I think that the army just could not continue to to give Khan the space that it had been willing to uh, earlier. Um, and we see that the crackdowns on, uh, you know, on, on his party, uh, on PTI leaders and supporters, it all intensified in a big way after those May 9th um, events for sure. Um, but in terms of the arrests, indeed, you know, I think what happened the first time he was arrested, the Supreme Court right away ruled that it was unconstitutional because of how it was done. I mean, he was making a routine court appearance and he was manhandled and taken away. The next time the army was just, or should I say the state, was much more careful about how it went about this, um, not wanting to risk more challenges from the Supreme Court that would be able to uh, to be successful. So I think it was, you know, the um, you know the state was much more careful about it, how it went about it in, in August. And we saw that when he was arrested in August and was then jailed, you didn't have the type of response um, from his supporters that you did in May. A main reason for that is that so many of them had been arrested, the crackdown was underway. And I think that, um, you know, many within, within his support base didn't feel comfortable taking to the streets. This is one of the criticisms against PTI that, and I'm not saying I'm endorsing this, but I'm articulating this criticism, this idea that, um, you know, the rank and file, the PTI, they're not willing to take to the streets and risk arrest and risk threats to their lives, as you might have had with, with some of the dynastic parties, the ones that have been around for a longer time. So I think that's an interesting point. But, um, yeah, I think that to make a long story short, what happened here is that initially the army was willing to give Khan space, recognizing the degrees of public support he had and also acknowledging his support within the, the establishment. But that changed and it couldn't abide by that after the events of, of, of May 9th, 2023. It was a whole new ballgame after that. It's interesting you bring up uh, Nawaz Sharif and his difficulties with the army, Michael, because another sort of headline-grabbing piece of news that I saw was the return of Nawaz Sharif, the former prime minister who has been ousted by the establishment no less than three times before. I believe the last time this happened in 2017-18, uh, the Supreme Court of Pakistan essentially disqualified him for life from holding any public office, ostensibly on the moral characteristics or the moral personality characteristics of Nawaz Sharif not being um, suitable for office. Assuming that the establishment does have a major say in this, uh, which I think is a safe assumption, why has the establishment chosen to allow him to return back to Pakistan and presumably take an active part in these elections? What is their calculation of the impact of his return, given that he has been difficult for them in the past? Yeah, it's a great question. And you know, right here, the final point you made, I, I would argue that the, historically, the establishment has often uh, bet on the wrong horses. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's, it's, it's looked to Nawaz Sharif, it's looked to Imran Khan uh, as favored sons, and things didn't work out very well. I think that's an important point to uh, to note. But in terms of Nawaz, I think he's such a, a great case study of how civil-military relations work in Pakistan and how politics on the whole works. I mean, this is someone that, uh, you know, um, initially as he was becoming a prominent political figure, um, he, um, he developed very strong ties with the army to the point that he became known as a, as a protege to, uh, to Zia al-Haq. Um, and then he would serve several terms in power, but, uh, you know, he was always running into problems with, with the army. And most famously, you know, General Musharraf, the army chief, um, removed him in a coup during one of his terms. But he always comes back. He patches up ties with the army enough to, uh, to come back. And that's what's happened now. But you know, in terms of why the, the army is looking to him, well, you're right. I mean, I, I don't think they see him as the ideal Prime Minister, I think that they would much be much more comfortable with Shabazz Sharif, but he might well be tainted from his role as Prime Minister and what was a very unpopular government uh, in over over the last year plus. I think it really comes down to how politics in Pakistan are are, are very zero sum, and um, you know the army is looking to elevate someone that is opposed to Khan, and you know, obviously Nawaz Sharif is a is a, a core rival of uh, of Imran. And so I think it, it views him as someone that could be helpful in that regard. Someone that would be certainly would be willing to come to to um, to uh, be in a position of power, uh, if for nothing else, to prevent Khan from having a chance to come back. And I don't think either the army or Sharif think that uh, there would not be more tensions if he became prime minister again. In fact, I think it would only be a matter of time, quite frankly. Particularly some of the things that 
some of the views I understand that he he has now about what he would do if he were to become prime minister, such as trying to reach out to India and try to open up some border trade. I'm not sure if the army is is ready for that. So uh, yeah, it's 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 a, clearly an, an immediate and opportunistic decision for short term uh, calculations, which you know at the end of the day is not going to serve the cause of political stability very well in Pakistan if passed this precedent, which I which it it certainly is, and we can assume that if he comes back, even if he's the guy for the army now. Things can go downhill very quickly after he's back in power. Right. And I think you sort of draw the attention to the central point here, which is he perhaps might be one of the few people who can challenge Imran Khan's power. And, and Kunwar, that's an interesting thing I want to ask you because you're based on the ground in Lahore. And I remember when uh, Nawaz Sharif flew back into Pakistan, actually watching that uh, Jalsa event of his live streamed. A few months earlier, we'd interviewed Avinash Paliwal of the SOAS, who suggested that Imran Khan's popularity in Punjab is what makes him also very dangerous for the establishment. This is not an extremist movement in one of the other provinces in KP or Sindh. This is the heartland. Punjab is also the largest province. It's also where the PMLN drew the lion's share of its seats uh, in the past. So do you think, from your opinion, from what you're seeing, does Nawaz Sharif's return shift the electoral prospects for the PMLN in any real sense? Do you think they can challenge the PTI's popularity in Punjab? I, I think this question of yours actually answers your previous question as well. Why Nawaz Sharif? And for that, we need to understand the importance of Punjab itself. Not only is it the most populous province, it's actually the share of Punjab in the National Assembly is more than half of the other, it's more than half of the total seats. So all the other three provinces combined have less seats than Punjab, which has 141 out of 266 seats. So that in itself is makes the Punjab by far obviously the most most uh, critical province. And then Nawaz Sharif being the one who's strong word has been Punjab makes Nawaz Sharif important in terms of countering Imran Khan as well. Let's not forget, I mean, Michael has already touched, touched on this, that the entirety of Nawaz Sharif's politics from the 80s during Ziyar's time, he was the finance minister in Punjab for first and then the chief minister and then his two first two terms in the 90s as a prime minister. Most of his uh, electoral vote bank came from Punjab. So his return to Punjab, and not just the return, the timing of it as well is very important because he's been he's he's not been here for the past three years. He's self exiled for medical reasons, yes, but the fact that he has come right before the election is very important. Given the fact, and this is very important, that he can conveniently distance himself from his own party's previous route. And why is that? Because again, he can't explicitly do this because. He'll be talking down his own brother. He can't trash talk him in, in public. But the party insiders, and even if you talk to the party, loyal party voters in Punjab, they're simply saying it wasn't Nawaz Sharif's government. It was Shabazz Sharif's government. And Shabazz Sharif is not prime minister material. He was always supposed to be the administrative front of the PMLN. Nawaz is the one who brings the narrative. Nawaz is the charismatic leader, the founder of the PMLN. So he can simply say, that was not me. Without saying it, that was Chef Bas. And by doing so, he also addresses an internal fissure within the PMLN as well, because there has been disagreement within the Chef Bas camp, and Chef Bas camp is Chef Bas Sharif, and the Nawaz camp is Nawaz Sharif and Mari Nawaz, Nawaz's daughter. The Chef camp was always closer to the military establishment. They were always the ones interested in aligning themselves, even when Nawaz was going completely gung ho against the military establishment following his ouster. It was Shabashri who wanted to patch things up. Similarly, in, in, in southern Punjab now, what the PMLN is doing is that they're lumping together a lot of electables. Electables is a popular quote-unquote term that you use in Pakistan of family politicians, landlords, or, or tribal leaders who have influence, who can just bulldoze their way electorally, so, so to speak, who have influence, basically, basically influential family. So in South, a lot of those uh, electables have joined the PMLN. Similarly, parties like Istekam Pakistan uh, Party of Jangir Tain, formerly with, allied with Imran Khan, they have serious adjustment uh, with, uh, with uh, Namashri's PMLN as well, Pakistan Rai Haq Party, that is based out of anti-Shia groups in Pakistan, so he's challenging the religious vote bank as well. And this is important because in 2018, the Tehreek-e-Labek Pakistan, the Islamic Party, which was declared a terror group briefly as well for its anti-France rhetoric over Charlie Hebdo's caricature. That party severely dented PMLN's vote in 2018. So the PMLN now is covering the Islamist vote bank as well, 
which it has traditionally done, but it is now countering the TLP at the same time. It, it now has the electables on board in, in Punjab as well. And they have no need back. And if you speak to people right now, yes, Imran Khan is still the most popular in urban Punjab, but in other parts of Punjab, with the return of Nawashiri, especially right before the elections, I think there is a mood shift within the PMLN voters and the workers, and they feel that they can overturn Imran Khan's popularity in Punjab and other parts as well. That's really interesting because I'd always wondered about what the ground level support for a party might look like, you know, especially in such a restricted campaigning season. But as we drift down to southern Punjab, I think the other player in this we should talk about, that's the PPP. The PPP, it already has a strong goal in Sindh. It's always had its dominant vote share from there. What do you think the PPP's electoral prospects are in this election? Because I'm not hearing enough about that. And Bilal Bhutto Zardari, we saw him cultivate a really high-profile image as a foreign minister uh, when the PDM coalition government was in place over the last couple of years. Do you think he's gunning for a leadership position? And what do you think the prospects of him and his party overall are, Tanwar? I think Bilal Bhutto Zardari has left quite an impression globally as a foreign minister. He was saying a lot of the right things. And then he was displaying his diplomatic grace as well when he publicly defended Imran Khan's visit to, to Moscow on February 24. He said that, Imran, I mean, as the Prime Minister, he could not have foretold that you know, Russia was going to invade Ukraine the same day. That shows his, his political maturity as well. Plus, he's, again, he's very, he's a true representative of the U. I mean, people have uh, argued that Imran Khan is a representative of this. He's, he's almost he's 70 years old now. So, and Nawashif is all almost the same as well. Even, even Marim Nawaz and Hamza Shabazz, who were supposed to be successors of Shabazz and Nawaz, they're almost 50. And Bilawal is a decade and a half younger than them. He's someone who is aware of what the politics of the youth is. You know, he talks about climate change beyond the fact that you should not cut trees. That's, that's the extent of the knowledge that for example, has. He says all of those things. Even today, on, on January 17th, he announced the People's Charter of the Economy, which is a return to the People's Party's traditional politics, very grassroots politics, talking about the poor, their issues. So he is connecting both with the future voters, people who will be voting for the first time in this election, and the traditional vote bank of the People's Party. Would all of this be enough to propel him to the Prime Minister's slot? I don't think so at all. That's because People's Party, despite all this, despite whatever the impression Balawal has created, is still very much rooted in not just sin, rural sin. Karachi is still up for grabs. Hyderabad, second largest city in, in sin, is also up for grabs. Yes, both the previous mayor elections in those two cities were won by the People's Party, but it is not as dominant in urban Sindh as it is in rural Sindh. And, and why is that? Because traditionally, People's Party has been the party that has presented itself as the representative of Sindh's concerns, you know, protecting Sindh from the pansionism or, or the usurpation of their rights on part of Punjab. While at the same time, you mentioned South Punjab, and South Punjab has traditionally been a part that has supported the People's Party as well. But that support has gradually dwindled because the loyal People's Party voter who's been voting for the People's Party for generations no longer sees the PPP as the party of Sulfakarali Bhutto or Benazir Bhutto. They see it as the party of Asif Ali Zardar. So they, they don't see they don't associate the word Bhutto as much as they used to. And even even with Balawal, Balawal Bhutto Zardari, they won't see him as Balawal Zardari and less as Balawal Bhutto. And that's very important to the traditional People's Party voter. But the thing is, the traditional People's Party voter is not young anymore. You need to attract the young voters. And for that, they need a revamp of the strategy. The impression that People's Party cannot win outside of sin, that's the impression that they need to change. And the one thing that the, that Bilawal is now trying to do to address that is that he will be the three states where he will be contesting his election from. One of those will be now Lahore. He's contesting elections from Lahore. That's a very ambitious move because he could very well not win that seat. But it signals an intention on part of the People's Party. They are no longer content with being capped inside sin. But of course, with just a few weeks to go to the elections, they cannot undo all of that. They're looking ahead. For instance, if another setup like the previous PDM-led government comes, where the People's Party perhaps forms an alliance in the center with Bilawal once again in a prominent role as the foreign minister, that's something that could work for them. So they're, they're working on that, but it depends on the narrative that Bilal will bring forth. Right. And that's particularly interesting because uh, what was uh, Mrs. Dari's nickname? Was it Mr. 10% back in the day? Or? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it still is. 
I mean, that's an unfortunate legacy to carry on. But, uh, but Michael, you know, covering like Punjab and Sindh, where the political developments uh, we've sort of discussed already, this election is also being conducted against the background of an economic and security crisis, as well as this instability in several provinces in Pakistan. I mean, as we're recording this, just today morning, we got news of Iran conducting airstrikes in Balochistan, which is surprising. You've seen the border crisis already in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa with the disturbances with the Taliban government at Afghanistan. We've seen recently the Balok Long March. How are these security issues impacting the election? Is this instability uh, affecting the main electoral currents in any way? Or are they just sort of a sideshow that the military establishment is kind of going to keep under wraps and it's not going to affect what's going to happen in February when the election hopefully takes place? Well, if you look at the last, uh, the prior two elections in 2018 and especially 2013, uh, there were a number of terrorist attacks um, on uh, election rallies, uh, electoral candidates. And especially in 2013, which, as you'll recall, was right at the tail end of a particularly uh, horrific wave of terrorist violence, mainly perpetrated by the, the Pakistani Taliban, the TTP. But in neither of those cases were elections uh, postponed or canceled. And indeed, we are seeing some terrorist violence targeting electoral candidates, mainly in, uh, in KPK. There have been several um, near misses as well. But this is not the the, the level of, of terrorist violence or the level of violence more broadly is not what we were seeing in 2018 or 2013. But then again, you know the state of play, the political state of play is very different now. And you know as we've been discussing, uh, you know the army leadership uh, would much prefer that uh, PTI does not come back to power. And uh, it must know that despite all these measures that have been implemented in recent months to make it more difficult for uh, PTI to return to power, you know, PTI maintains significant levels of support, and uh, they are able to uh, to still mobilize. There was a pretty large rally in Karachi over the weekend. Uh, I wouldn't say hundreds of thousands of people, nothing like that, but it was it was fairly large. And though this doesn't make um, media uh, coverage in Pakistan because many journalists are under pressure not to report on PTI, there have been some pretty sizable rallies in KPK as well, where I would argue PTI also enjoys a lot of strength, not as much as in Punjab, but it's strong. And of course, PTI ran the government in KPK in recent years. So given all of that, I think that the army might be a bit uh, concerned about the, the, the risk that somehow PTI could still mount an electoral challenge. And if so, that could be a, an incentive for the establishment to try to come up with the pretext to delay the elections. Uh, and security concerns would, would be a logical pretext in that case. Now, my understanding is that the army leadership at this moment in time wants to see the elections happen when they're scheduled to happen on February 8th. But, you know, I don't think that we could rule out the possibility of the army um, uh, pushing the election commission and other authorities to postpone elections in certain spaces, particularly, you know, violence-prone terrorist violence constituencies, likely in, in KPK. I don't think that can be ruled out. But I don't think that, that terrorism risks are something that would prompt the, the elections to be postponed on the whole, but one never, never knows for the reasons that I, um, that, I, that I mentioned before. But indeed, it is just a very volatile moment for Pakistan across the board. We've talked about the political uh, tensions. You mentioned the economic stress, which is absolutely a huge, a huge deal. Uh, it's, it's, you know, we're talking about significant levels of inflation and so on, not Sri Lanka levels, but still it's pretty serious. Um, and I think that all plays into this broader sense of volatility and uncertainty, particularly with the election supposed to happen, but until they actually happen, I think that many observers and also, you know, key donors and foreign investors will, will be a bit anxious and not, not completely comfortable engaging with Pakistan until those elections have actually happened when they're supposed to. So we've been sort of mentioning the establishment as if it's something that all our listeners would know what we're talking about. And Michael, this idea of the establishment in Pakistan, which I hope you can maybe elucidate a little more on, they've always played a really important part in any electoral process. What role is the establishment playing in influencing the outcome of this election? And in particular, could you talk about the sort of actions they've taken against the PTI to limit their electoral prospects? You've already hinted at some of the leaders being detained. Obviously, Imran Khan been in jail for the past few months. 
We have heard commentaries and opinions coming out of Pakistan that said that post the Imran Khan experiment, there seems to be a consensus within the senior military ranks that they want to take a less involved participation in politics. That doesn't seem to have transpired. What is your view of what the military is doing right now? And do you think that their involvement in Pakistan politics is going to go down once the so-called Imran Khan threat goes away? Yeah, so uh, indeed, the establishment, it's a word that everyone uses and oftentimes isn't defined, as I understand it, uh, you know, Gunwa should, should, should tell me if he thinks this is not the right interpretation. You're basically talking about the, um, the military, particularly the army and the intelligence, the main intelligence agency, the ISI and the associated intelligence agencies. That's what the reference is to. It's not as much to other security forces, it's not necessarily to the police, but to those that actually have significant levels of political power and arrogate to themselves a lot of political power. So the army, the military in the whole, mainly the army and the, the ISI. So yeah, it's interesting that um, when General Bajo was making his farewell speech before he stepped down, he, he basically acknowledged, it was quite remarkable, he acknowledged that um, for too long the army has been involved in politics, it's time to move on not the first time that we've heard a, uh, an army leader say something like that, but it happened at a moment of particularly high tensions between, um, between uh, the military and, and the opposition. But his, his, his advice has not been heeded, which is, should not be a surprise to anyone who follows uh, Pakistan even, even casually. I'd argue that the army is, is very involved, not explicitly with some exceptions, which I'll get into, but is very involved in the political process uh, right now. The, ex- the exceptions, which I'll highlight, is actually in the realm of economics. Now, you know, typically, even though whenever Pakistan's military has not been um, uh, wielding direct military rule, it's always um, it's always exerting its influence behind the scenes. It's always driving policy, foreign policy, defense policy, anything related to defense, foreign policy, especially with key countries. But it would generally be more quiet when it came to economic policy. But that's not the case now, and. The army chief, the current army chief, is playing a very public role in trying to pitch a new entity. It's called the Special Investment Facilitation Council, relatively new. It's meant to bring in more investment, uh, particularly from the Gulf states and then more broadly. When General Munir, the army chief, was in the U.S. Uh, several weeks ago, he was, you know, again, he's the army chief. He was making a pitch for the U.S. to invest in this in this council. Why should the army chief of a country be doing that? But that's what he was doing. And um, I think it reflects just how how things have changed. Um, but in terms of broader political things, I would argue that given how angry the army chief and other army leaders are at Khan, I think that they feel they have to be involved, <laughs> quite frankly. They, they have to do things that could make it difficult for him to uh, to come back. That's very clear. Now, some of the tactics that are being used against him and PTI on the whole are tactics, tactics that the army has often used against those that are not um, in its good graces. You know, things like pressuring media outlets not to uh, to carry coverage of, um, of political rallies of uh, the party they want to target. Um, you know, pressing the judiciary to uh, do certain things to uh, make things difficult for those they don't like and help those that they do like. Um, you know, th- these are things that have happened many times before, including in 2008, 18, when the army was 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 looking at Imran Khan as the favorite son, and Nawaz Sharif was not the favorite son. So these these tactics have returned. But what I think is a bit different now compared to 2018 is the intensity with which the crackdown is being uh, carried out. Um, you know, not only have we had cases of uh, PTI leaders and supporters being uh, being arrested, but you know, cases of family members, including wives and daughters and sisters being caught up in this dragnet. And at times, according to some credible rumors, facing abuse and harassment uh, uh, in, in detention. So I think that the level of intensity now is, is stands out. I'm not saying this is unprecedented. You know, I think many PTI supporters say things have never been this bad. Well, I think things were pretty bad if you, you go back to several different cases, the US time among others. But Things are bad right now in in the current moment, and um, you know, I think that's again a, a reflection of just how strong a vendetta the army leadership has against Khan, particularly Munir. And here, you know, very briefly, I will note that when Munir was previously ISI chief, when Khan was prime minister, and uh, Munir was fired um, soon after he became ISI chief, and very unusual. And um, as I understand it, the reason for that was that he had evidence to indicate that uh, Khan's family, including his wife, may have been involved in corrupt activities. So 
that's where, and so, and, and then of course, you know, it, everything else plays out. Khan, the, the assassination attempt against Khan, which Khan directly blamed the the establishment for, um, and the military's response to that, and then of course the attacks on the army facilities. This has made it impossible for the army to step back. If there's ever been a time when the army would be less likely to step back, it would it would be now, quite frankly. So with the elections, hopefully, well, hopefully due in a few weeks on Feb the 8th, you're on the ground as Kunwar. So maybe you could clarify what the campaign's looking like right now. In India, you can see the election campaigns already started months before. You can see the public rallies, you can see opening up of projects, etc. But what does that look like on the ground in Pakistan right now? Do you think that the establishment's actions against the PTI have been f- effective in eroding its support? And are they positive signs for the PMLN and the PPP? And more importantly, I think, what is the Pakistani public's view on the establishment right now? Has this entire ordeal post Imran Khan changed their view or their trust in the establishment? Yeah, so before I come to your question, a couple of quick points. First, yes, absolutely, Michael, your definition of establishment would be what popularly understood definition is. And secondly, just to add to the bit that Michael said about uh, Kamar Bajwa said when he was about to depart that, you know, Babri has been in- involved in politics for too long. Incidentally, that's something he said in, in his inaugural speech as well when he first started off as the army chief, you know, six years ago. And in between, intermittently, he said the same thing, the Army's involvement in politics. And that, and yet, Army was arguably the most involved in politics under his, his tenure than it has, or at least as much as it has been in, in the past. So that's one thing. Now, coming to your question about how the people view establishment and how the campaign looks like, like right now, as far as recent history goes, the Army has never been more unpopular. And that is also a testament to the popularity of Imran Khan. So these answer your questions that despite all the maneuvering, Imran Khan's popularity is not decreasing. It's actually the army's popularity that's decreasing to a point where army was the holiest of holy cows in Pakistan. You would not hear a random person on the street bad-mouthing anyone in the army. Today, and again, I, I say this as someone who's traveled to KP, Sindh and Punjab in recent months, if someone is a supporter of the army today, they are the ones who have to be careful. That's how unpopular the army is today. And that's how common the anti-army sentiment is. And again, that's also because of Imran Khan, not because of any ideological change. But how would this impact the coming election? The popularity of Imran Khan itself is not going to make any difference. And the clincher over here is the recent verdict of the Supreme Court to not allow the PTI the bad electoral symbol for the upcoming election. Now, the significance of that is practically everyone associated with the PDI would now have to contest the election as an independent candidate. The average voter might be familiar with the most popular PDI leaders, but for every constituency to make this effort to now tell everyone that this is the particular candidate that is now affiliated with the party, instead of simply going to the poll and just looking for the bat and just voting for the bat, it makes it complicated for the PTI. Secondly, another problem for the PTI now is that since they don't have the symbol, once you have the consolidated results in place, they don't get any other reserved seats for the women and the minorities. So you have 266 seats where the elections will be contested, and then you have seats reserved for the women, 60 seats for the women, and 10 for the minorities. So they won't be getting any of that because they're not contesting the election as, as a party. The worst of this lot, and this I think this signals a, a lot of the questions that we've discussed today, since everyone associated with the PTI unofficially would be an independent candidate, once the elections are over, they would be free to join the party. So what is now a reality is that someone could say, I am a candidate for the PTI, vote for me, and you have people voting for that person. But once the election is over, they are free to join the PMLN, they are free to join the People's Party because the, the laws, the constitutional protections against cross-trading do not apply to independent candidates. Now, not only does this completely erase the PTI from the picture altogether, what this also means is now that people can actually cash in on the PTI's popularity by banking on someone who's a popular candidate and offering them incentives and you, you know what the range of incentives would be. And not only this, this is not just for the PDI because this, you need to understand why the symbol has uh, been removed. It has been removed because the PDI did not conduct its intra-party elections as they should. 
anyone affiliated or anyone with any know-how of Pakistani politics knows that's true for all political parties. You have two of the main parties, the dynastic parties. And if it weren't because of the inter-party election, they would have been disqualified for the benign riots as, as a terror. So, I mean, or, or some other reason. Some, some other reason would have come up. This is the military signaling to all major parties that we could do this to you as well. So no matter who you are, no matter if you are Zardari, no matter if you are Nawaz Sharif, if you cross certain lines, come the election after this one, this is something we can use to disqualify any of you. But the ground reality today is that all the maneuvering is in place to bring Nawaz Sharif and the PMLN to power. And the biggest indicator in Pakistan as to where the power center electorally is at is what ironically happens in its least democratic province, which is Balochistan. Because Balochistan practically is governed by the center, not officially, but inevitably, whichever provincial government in Balochistan is, it is always, almost always aligned with the center. So what is happening in Balochistan is that 29 electables, again the same word electables, in December, half from the BAP, Baloch Awam Party, almost half of them uh, have joined the PMLN. Some of them have joined the People's Party as well. So it's quite obvious that whether it's Balochistan, whether it's Punjab, whether it's Tindh, the parties in favor are PMLN and People's Party. The ground support for those parties is in favor of the PMLN. So it, the likelihood is that it will be the PMLN which will form the government with perhaps People's Party settling for sin or maybe a coalition in the center. We'll see. But that's the reality. So, Michael, the last question to you. I, I try to make this podcast not about Imran Khan, but I, I seem to have failed that promise. In the unlikely event that the PTI comes back to power, what might that scenario look like considering so many of its leaders, including its most popular leader right now, are in jail? How might the establishment react to that outcome? And even if the PTI doesn't come to power, let's say it's one of the other parties or a coalition, Pakistan has a lot of formidable economic and geostrategic challenges that it has to tackle in the next few years. How would any successive government be able to respond to these challenges with this political chaos and the denial of perhaps Pakistan's most popular leader? How would they be able to carry forward that agenda? What, what do you predict? I do think that even after the election, when and if it happens, uh, Pakistan is poised for a long-term period of political instability um, for the very reasons that you mentioned. I think the most likely election outcome is uh, no one party getting a, an outright majority. Um, there'll need to be a, a process to develop a coalition, and it'll likely be a, a relatively weak and fractious coalition like the previous one. Um, and that type of coalition you know, tends to be one that the army prefers because it's easier to, um, to exploit. Now, to your question, if the PTI were to return to power, I think we really have to suspend our disbelief. It's hard to imagine that happening, given, given the scale of the crackdown against the group. You know, we, we were talking about the, the Supreme Court ruling banning the, the use of the election, the elect, their, their election symbol. It would be very difficult. Um, but, you know, at the same time, uh, there's no other party, in my view, that, that has the level of popularity that PTI does, which is why I think things will sort of balance each other out, leading to no one party getting a majority and there having to be a coalition. But if, if you want to think about these, these, these very unlikely scenarios, if PTI were to return, there have to be some type of um, understanding reached between the party and, and the army where you have a particular PTI leader that is put out there essentially as the one that, that could, could be there to replace Khan, one that the army would be comfortable with. Now, given the, the bad blood between the two, it's hard to imagine anything like that working out. But there have been some buzz about certain names that have been put out there. I'd be curious to hear if, if Kunwar has heard anything about this. You know, um, so, so Shah Mahmoud Qureshi, who's the former foreign minister in Khan's government, that's been a name that's put out there. Someone who doesn't appear to have as confrontational a relationship with the army as many of the, uh, of the other um, uh, leaders do. He has been in jail uh, recently, but that doesn't mean that something can't be worked out. So basically, there needs to be some sort of understanding between the PTI and the military to bring on a, a leader that would be deemed as acceptable to the army, who could then contest elections and who then could be a prime minister candidate. But again, is anyone PTI ready to make that concession? Maybe so, but um, I, I, I really don't think that's, that's likely. So yeah, and getting to the rest of your question. It's, it's just going to be very difficult um, to restore political stability because whatever happens in the election, someone's not going to accept the result, particularly the large con, con support base um, because they'll feel that there's not a level playing field, which there's not. Um, the army will continue to face pressure. Um, and you, know, you just have a lot of 
my understanding is just a lot of disillusionment, particularly from younger uh, younger voters, younger Pakistanis, especially con supporters, who really feel they have nowhere to, to throw their support. There's no other political party they prefer. Uh, many of them, uh, some of them are willing to accept the military and, and still support it, but not the guy at the top because of their perception that he has this this vendetta against uh, against Khan. So I think that um, wh- what happens with that very large PTI support base? If it doesn't feel comfortable mobilizing, protesting peacefully, that has no one to throw its support to, that I think is sort of this this social stability risk that one has to uh, to keep in mind. At any rate, it's going to make it uh, all the more difficult for the next government, whatever it looks like, to carry out its activities. And also, as we have said before, whatever government takes power, whatever prime minister you have, I imagine it's just a matter of time before its relations with the army go south, following past precedent. So, Kunwar, what do you think? Um, Michael made a good point there about the PTI support base. Where does that go if Imran Khan or the PTI doesn't come back into power? Personally, I, I don't see any any chance of the PTI coming back to power. Again, going back to the fact that it's now practical impossibility because for that, logistically what we need to happen is that for whole majority of independent candidates to win those seats and then need to stick to the PTI and that requires complete obliteration of the PMLN in Punjab, requires the, the complete dismantling of the People's Party. And I, I don't think that even despite the overwhelming support for Imran Khan, the numbers are that high especially given the return of Nawaz Sharif and especially the fact that through other reasons which uh, the elections have been delayed so much the elections had taken place maybe right after his Imran Khan's ouster maybe gradually other parties have made, made their comeback to a, to a degree where they can win a manipulated election they, the elections are tra- were transparent and the PTI was still on, on the ballot paper they would win but without that it's not and what will happen right now I, I think I agree completely it will be a coalition government I think the coalition would be led led by the PMLN and it would be Nawaz Sharif at the helm of it. But yes, it would be very passed up, perhaps, you know, coalition, provincial coalitions as well, that easier to manage, you know, for the military establishment. And I think whatever, whatever government comes to power, the massive, massive issue that need to tackle immediately. You have to renegotiate the IMF plan, which will end in, in, in March this year. Then you have to address the, the stalled CPEC projects. A lot of regional challenges, and unfortunately, it will be a botched-up coalition government that will deal with it, or not, because they might just be the ones taking dictation on board. Well, it looks like there is a lot hanging on the coming elections, if and when they do happen. But hopefully, we've managed to decode some part of that uh, for you, our listeners. And uh, thanks so much, Kunwar and Michael, for joining Beyond the Indus and helping break down this really complex election. To the rest of you listeners, uh, for the next couple of months, we're going to be deep diving into the upcoming Indian election. So if you're not tired of two major South Asian elections, we have plenty more coming for you. So until then, stay safe and take care. And thanks again, Kunwar and Michael. Thank you. Thank you.